We are today in a changing world. In spite of the 200,000 or so years that we modern humans have roamed this vast earth, we suddenly find ourselves in an epoch as rife with change as any before. And with that change comes opportunity. Science, biotech, a cure for cancer or Alzheimer's, keys to yet uncovered secrets of the autism spectrum, the global economy, monetary systems, cryptocurrencies. The very foreboding nature of that phrase is as intimidating as it is exciting. And in spite of centuries and centuries of active modern life in Africa, Asia, Europe, and a small handful of centuries on this new world, today we are seeing fresh opportunities and possibilities that we've never seen or experienced before. Yes, after four and a half billion years, this planet is opening up more and more every day to free-thinking, hard-working, ambitious individuals. I have two young adult children, themselves coming of age and formulating their own voyages of discovery into this seemingly limitless landscape. And the pitfalls and dangers along the way may shape that voyage, but will never define the course. That is left up to each of these young adults themselves, individually, based on their own passion, desire, focus, resolve. I can't tell my bright, beautiful, competent 21-year-old daughter who already has a four-year college degree what to be, what to pursue, what to seek out. I can only guide her and help her fortify her plans as effectively as possible. She's planning to be a child psychologist, and I think that's remarkable. And I can't tell 20-year-old, six-foot-three-inch Chance Jr. what to be either. I can only tell him what I know, what I've seen and what I see. But what I see may be very different from what he sees and what his eyes and his psyche will focus on. And when Henry Hudson finally returned from his chaotic and schizophrenic voyage across the earth, his focus suddenly was very different from that of his now former Dutch employers. And sailing back across the North Atlantic in the fall of 1609, Hudson knew what he was obligated to do in order to close out his contract with the VOC. And that was essentially twofold. One, return their vessel. And two, deliver the journal chronicling that voyage. After all, that was really what they were paying for. And in fact, item one of this task list was not actually the more imposing of the two. Because in Hudson's complex and often tortured psyche, the careful revisions and special touches required to properly prepare that journal would be, like him, quite complicated. And within the dizzying nebulosities of Henry Hudson's legendary inner drive, perhaps the defining irony of this enigmatic icon is something that even this complex and often convoluted mind could never have predicted. Because all latitudes and frozen sea routes aside, the most compelling facet of Hudson's overall legacy is that it is his inadvertent discoveries and accomplishments that tend to be the most lasting. While the focus of the Dutch was on profit and trade, the singular focus of Henry Hudson was eternal glory. 
and not just the glory of having a river named after him. The scattered beaver skins aboard the VOC's Halvaman that late autumn of 1609 are as acute an illustration of the mesmerizing randomness of this incredible story as anything. Because in truth, it is precisely Hudson's subversive actions that would actually result in his most lasting contribution to this inimitable place. In fact, the unintended consequence of Hudson's intention to depart the river he discovered along the island of Manhattan would itself till the soil for the greatest cultivation of capitalism this planet would ever know. podcast island the story of how this culture this world this island the place we now know as new york came to be my name is chance kelly and i look forward to you saying wow history is cool episode 5 lutherans 1610 lombard von tweenhausen when the 65-foot yacht belonging to the Dutch East India Company finally nosed its way into the docks of Amsterdam in November of 1609, the rigid but cautious VOC directors were neither surprised nor disappointed that the English skipper whom they had contracted for this mission did not accompany the ship into port. The fact was that item one of Henry Hudson's two-pronged obligation was now fulfilled. The half-moon had been returned, albeit without its English skipper, who, having put in at Dartmouth in England and regretfully, apparently regretfully, had communicated to the VOC that the English authorities were holding him there. For what? Well, let's just say that it was for not being an English team player, more or less. But no matter. Handing the ship over to his Dutch crew who were all too eager to get themselves back to Amsterdam and start reconstructing their own lives and careers was a simple enough undertaking. And it's quite possible that Hudson also dropped a few extra guilders into his homebound sailors' hands in order for them to arrange to send his own family back to London once the Halvaman docked in Amsterdam. But even before that, when stepping off the half-moon that chilly November morning in 1609 onto the dock at Dartmouth, exhausted and wary, Henry Hudson's specific focus was not, in fact, the scattered trove of healthy beaver skins that his men had acquired in trade along this haphazard sojourn to a new world. In fact, the only possession that Hudson was adamant about carrying on his person as he stepped onto the dock of his home nation was the Voyage Journal, which he had written. Yes, he did in fact write one, but which he felt required some very extensive revisions. Uh, hold on. Did I say journal? Because I should have said journals. Hudson's own journal, such as it may have been, and the one concocted by his cynical ancient man of the sea, Robert Jewett. Two journals, one mission. One focus. Or was there more than one focus? Now, 
You know well by now that Henry Hudson was a complicated man. Not a dummy by any stretch. He was a thinker, there is no doubt. A reader, a researcher, an obsessive collector of data. Perhaps to a fault. You also know by now that Hudson's journal has since disappeared, and so, having extensive knowledge of this mercurial English captain, you can draw your own conclusions as to how or why. But what you may not have caught along the way is that certain fragments of Hudson's lost journal actually do still remain to this day. And now, the particular content of those excerpts is, I think, very telling. And the fact that these particular fragments did make it back to Europe further defines the crafty, manipulative, and calculating, albeit tortured, soul that Hudson was. Now, on September 11th, 1609, when the Half Moon nosed through the Narrows and entered the Upper Bay, they were then staring northward across this vast deep harbor at the southern tip of Manhattan Island. If you've ever had the opportunity to see a game from the Staten Island Yankees Stadium, that's more or less the view that Hudson had, minus 400 years of commercial development and plus centuries and centuries of greenery that is no longer there. And this is one of the few fragments that remains from Hudson's own hand from that day. When I came on shore, the swarthy natives all stood around and sung in their fashion. Their clothing consisted of skins of foxes and other animals, which they dress and make the skins into garments of various sorts. Their food is Turkish wheat, which they cook by baking, and it is excellent eating. They all came about, one after another, in their canoes, which were made of a single hollowed tree. Their weapons are bows and arrows pointed with sharp stones, which they fasten with hard resin. They had no houses, but slept under the blue heavens, sometimes on mats of bulrushes interwoven, and sometimes on the leaves of trees. They always carry with them all their goods, such as their food and green tobacco, which is strong and good for use. They appear to be a friendly people, but have a great propensity to steal, and are exceedingly adroit in carrying away whatever they take a fancy to. Ah, <laughs> oh, good old Captain Hank. Now, we could do hours of analysis on the words that Hudson chose for this entry, but what jumps out at me is, one, their clothing consisted of skins of animals. That's important information for the Dutch. Because until this point, the fur market had been cornered and controlled by the Russians who were far away, tough to deal with, and insistent on gold and silver for these furs that were, for the record, not nearly as fine a quality as the samples that Hudson's men brought back. But as you know by now, the new emerging player in that market was the French in the aforementioned territory being referred to as Nova Francia or Canada. So yeah, again, the Dutch did not want to fight with the French. They'd rather have the furs, you know? You catch more bees with honey, right? And you catch more furs with geographic tact and diplomacy. At least those were the rules around here in the 1600s. Hudson knew this would be important to the VOC. He knew it very well. Two, their food is Turkish wheat and is excellent eating. Turkish wheat is what the Europeans were calling the Indian's maize or corn. Now, this was a voyage of discovery, after all, so knowing what resources were there is a very valuable piece of information. 
And to us 21st century Earthlings, it's hard to put into perspective the importance and significance of the presence of fertile soil and vibrant, viable crops. These Dutch, and nearly all humans at this point, were an agrarian society. Most people grew and raised their own food, or their societies revolved around the cultivation of that food. And that too would last for the better part of the next three centuries. 3. Their canoes were made out of a single hollowed tree. Now, that would be a tulip tree. I know because I'm lucky enough to have one in my own backyard. It grows over 30 feet out of the ground before any branches appear, and therefore is the singular timber for the purpose of making such canoes. But hardwood lumber in general was of great importance to the Dutch. There was no such resource left in the Netherlands, and any such lumber needed to be imported from Scandinavia, or worse yet, from Russia, at a serious premium. Ships were built out of such timber, not just canoes out of tulip trees, but large ships were built of spruce, oak, pine, and other woods. And this new world was full of such trees, some with trunks nearly three meters wide, and many over a hundred feet tall. The Dutch were the emerging world empire of shipbuilding and international navigation, and this lumber resource, seemingly infinite and theirs for the taking, was priceless information. Charles Effenepauze will be right back after the break. 4. Their weapons are bows and arrows, pointed with sharp stones, which they fasten with hard resin. They had no houses, but slept under the blue heavens, sometimes on mats of bulrushes interwoven, and sometimes on the leaves of trees. Hudson's message here? These are very primitive people, and the land and lumber and furs are here for the taking. Although Hudson was mistaken that they actually slept under the blue heavens, these natives actually slept in bark huts or wigwams. Hudson just never communicated closely enough with them to know that, or to care to learn it. 5. They always carry with them all their goods, such as their green tobacco, which is strong and good for use, another valuable resource commodity here. 6. They appear to be a friendly people, but have a great propensity to steal, and are exceedingly adroit in carrying away whatever they take a fancy to. Or, in the words of the cynical old Jewett, we durst not trust them. So while these resources and opportunities exist in this remarkable new world, it is not without its dangers and pitfalls. And Hudson makes a point of specifically mentioning that these people are inclined towards stealing. Which, by the way, he is not alone at all in that claim. This would become a well-observed pattern among the settlers of this land for decades to come. Though the concept of stealing, as perceived by the Europeans, versus borrowing or sharing, as the natives likely considered it, can go a long way toward explaining much of the disconnect between these two societies. But all perceptions aside... What would begin as some unfortunate societal misunderstandings would eventually metastasize into a series of catastrophic cultural clashes in this unpredictable and irregular new world. Now, timing has a lot to do with this overall epic story, especially at the beginning part of it. Having already sought entree into the fur trade mentioned earlier in this Nova Francia, or New France, which more specifically is the area of today's Quebec, Canada. The Dutch were met with obstacles at every turn. 
For instance, on January 22, 1605, when Amsterdam merchant Jan Munter and his company applied for a charter in that region, the States General refused his request. And they did so specifically because it was, as they explained, a known trade to that of the French. But what was it exactly that was so special to this specific region? Well, the furs that the French were bringing back from there were the castor gras, or the fat beaver skins, the good stuff, from a new world that was apparently a land of plenty. This in contrast to the vastly inferior and non-gras skins being produced by the Russians from their increasingly diminishing supply. But yes, the States General astutely and diplomatically refused Dutchman Jan Munter's request to hunt animals in the well-demonstrated French region, as the Dutch Republic was far too young, fragile, and poor to alienate an established, powerful, and wealthy neighbor like the French. And so... When the news did return to the Amsterdam docks that Hudson and his Dutch crew had traded directly with the indigenous natives on the river that he had just discovered, which fortuitously just happened to lay in a vast no-man's land several hundred miles south of the French trading region and several hundred miles north of the fledgling English colony at Jamestown. Yes, understandably, the Dutch were excited. Now, let's... Take a look back just once more at Hudson's curious behavior. Why did he operate in this very way? Why did he provide specific information about certain elements of his journey, specific valuable components to this wild and untapped new world, and withhold certain other elements, particularly key navigational details? Well, Hudson understood a lot. And he understood the force and the dynamic of passion and of drive. And he understood how an obsession can drive a man or men. And any and all of his faults and shortcomings aside, having lived in Amsterdam before being hired by the Dutch on this momentous mission, Hudson knew darn well about how ambitious and industrious and entrepreneurial these Dutch were. The vigor and drive and proactive nature of Hudson's half-moon sea beggar crewmen was in fact inherent in nearly all Dutchmen. It just took on varied hues. And Hudson knew that once these Dutch businessmen got a good whiff of the resources in this new world, just above 40 degrees latitude, the timber, the crops, the vegetation, the castor gras furs that were there for the taking in this seemingly unoccupied territory that he had discovered, he was most certain that they would bite. And bite they did. So when Hudson didn't care to accompany his ship, the Half Moon, on its return back to Amsterdam, and didn't care to provide the Dutch East India Company directors the full set of data that they had really hired him to go get. The inherently hard-nosed, litigious Calvinist capitalists did not exactly press it. But why? Well, for one reason, uh, they just didn't pay him. <laughs> because he didn't do his job. But there was actually another reason, a really good reason, because once they saw what was actually in this new land that we now call the Hudson Valley, they actually wanted Englishman Hudson out of the way as much as Hudson wanted these Dutchmen off his tail. 
He felt he'd already used them for everything he had needed them for in order to pinpoint once and for all exactly where this northern passage must be. And so on his return trip back across the North Atlantic in the fall of 1609, Henry Hudson was already plotting his return to the Northwest, and he already knew it would not be with the Dutch. Because he gets a new commission less than a year later by a group of English investors, not the Muscovy Company, but another group. And he's off again in uh, um, the beginning of 1610, off directly to the Northwest this time. But this time, in his 1610 voyage, Hudson felt that he knew exactly where this passage was. And the truth is that this time, that crafty old Hudson was very, very close. But after successfully gliding once more back across the North Atlantic, then taking a right over Newfoundland into the Labrador Sea, he made one final fateful wrong turn that would seal his fate forever. When he went left, but had he taken a right instead, he would have sailed his way into what we call the Baffin Bay, and from there to the definitive infamy that he had been seeking his entire career. Because then Hudson would have been on the very same route that would eventually take Norwegian explorer Roald Amundsen all the way, after all. But as mentioned earlier, that wouldn't be for nearly 300 years when Amundsen reached the Pacific Ocean via this passage in 1906. So the funny thing is, or <laughs> one of them, is that Hudson's manipulations worked. The Dutch were enticed by his information that this fertile new world was full of priceless resources and was theirs for the taking. And in fact, Hudson's manipulations would ultimately prove to be the Dutch's fortune and simultaneously his own ultimate misfortune. And yes, it did work to get the Dutch off his tail because the Dutch East India Company didn't care about Hudson anymore. He wasn't able to grasp the magnitude of the value of this market that he had inadvertently discovered. Now, there are certain parts of this overall epic story that I really, really love, and this is definitely one of them. Because again, minorities and underdogs play such a pivotal major role in the cultivation of what this society will ultimately become. And the story of the place that would be the bastion of diversity in the universe is hatched from an origin of diversity within its mother city of Amsterdam. Now, let's take a close look at the Dutch Republic in 1610. The religion, the very reason that the Dutch had fought for their own nation from the Spanish, was Protestantism. Specifically, as we've mentioned already, it was Calvinism. And what does that mean? Well, in a nutshell, let's just call it no-frills Christianity. Things are predestined, God is all-powerful, and Calvinists never bow down to idolatry which, by contrast, tended to define the contemporary Habsburg Catholics and, on a wider scale, the Holy Roman Empire, who were actually the ones creating all the trouble for these modest Calvinists in the first place. So that's essentially who made up the Dutch Republic, Calvinist refugees. 
or libertarian activists who were bound and determined to live free or die. Hmm. Sounds like another nation I know. But here's the important detail that within that Dutch Republic was its premier city of Amsterdam, the very central incubator for all diversity and tolerance really in the world at this point. So, who came to Amsterdam? Well, pretty much anybody who was oppressed anywhere else on earth who could actually make it there. And that didn't just include Dutch and Flemish Calvinists. Because the group that really took notice to the value of the resources that Hudson reported on and took back to Europe with him was not actually the central group of this burgeoning Dutch Republic. In fact, it was yet another group, a minority group, also living and worshipping in Amsterdam. Their backers were not Calvinist group, not a group of Catholics from Spain. They were not English. They were actually a very tight-knit group of Lutheran merchants. That's right. Uh, from Amsterdam. Right. They were they were all Lutherans. <laughs> now, Charlie, tell me about that, because the next Lutheran that I know of in this overall story is a widow who happens to be a landowner, but who has serious financial difficulties by the name of Annika Jans. And she is not looked at very highly in this community until it is determined that she will in fact marry the second ordained minister in this colony, not a Lutheran, but in fact the number one Calvinist in the colony, the head of the Dutch Reformed Church of New Netherland, Domini Everardus Bogardus. Lutherans were looked down upon in this culture. Yeah, the Lutherans, they were a tight-knit group. They were a minority. They weren't Calvinists, but it apparently was very important back then because there were many Lutherans in the settlement up here in Beverwijk, Fort Orange. A lot of Germans came over from northern Germany. You also have Scandinavians in the logging industry, uh, Norwegians uh, who were running sawmills. You have some Danes and Swedes as well who are Lutherans. Perhaps the most recognizable name among the Lutheran emigres of this era is a pious Dane by the name of Jonas Bronck, who would arrive here three decades later and whose name would be immortalized as one of the eventual five boroughs of the city of New York, the Bronx. But that, too, is another episode down the line. Now hold that thought, because we'll be right back. And the tight-knit Lutheran group that was particularly intrigued by the sizable hall of beaver furs was led by a man named Lambert van Twainhuysen and included another merchant named Arnaud Vogels, who just so happened to be connected in Rouen, France, of all places, to the burgeoning fur trade that Dutchmen like Jan Munter and others were so eager to enter into in the aforementioned, highly coveted French trading region of New France. But once again, also, as mentioned earlier, the Dutch needed to maintain diplomacy with the French. They had to be selective, after all, about just how many major world powers they clashed with at any one time. But this pocket that Hudson had happened upon just happened to be situated strategically between the French and English colonies, just above 40 degrees latitude. 
So why did the Dutch East India Company not take on this new venture? Why did they pass along to a private group? Or was the private group connected with the Dutch East India Company in some way? Yeah, well, they were all connected in some way. The East India Company had their hands full in the Far East. They were taking one possession from the Portuguese after the other until they had almost total control of the uh, Indonesian archipelago, including uh, Japan, Formosa, India, China, and all of those countries, and trade was secondary. And so as this close-knit group of Lutheran merchants living in Amsterdam started to formulate their plans for this new market, Henry Hudson was meeting new obstacles in the bay that bears his name to this day. And while the half-moon was at times like a voyage without a nation, this 1610 voyage of Hudson's was decidedly English. That's what his entire crew was, and that's who they were beholden to. But Hudson? Well, we know enough about him by now to know that he never feels quite beholden to anybody or to any nation. So in the disorienting cold and desolation of the northwest corner of the planet, having already endured one winter, and with Hudson now pitching his English crew about a second winter, it didn't really matter what the nation of origin was for the ship or of its skipper. This crew was no longer in accord with Captain Henry Hudson. And that tragic left turn into what we call Hudson's Bay today would in fact close the book on this chapter and open an entirely new one from a group of quietly ambitious Lutheran merchants living in Amsterdam in order to capitalize on this strange and fertile new world that this very lost Captain Henry Hudson had just discovered and just as soon left behind less than one year before. Island is an original production, researched, written, and produced by Chance Kelly and Dr. Yap Jacobs. Research associate, James Mallon. Executive producer, Alec Baldwin. For Cavalry Audio and iHeartRadio. Our 17th century Dutch musical arrangements are courtesy of Camerata Triactina. And I am your host, Chance Kelly, thanking you for boarding our voyage of discovery en route to saying, Wow, history is cool. We'll see you next time. Folks, we want to thank you once again for listening, remind you to please listen in order, and tell you that we realize that there's a lot to digest on this untamed wild island of Manhattan. And for that very reason, we've set up an email just for you. So whenever you have a question, just email us at the podcast island at gmail.com. 
the podcast island no caps no punctuation no spaces at gmail.com and you can also find that email address on our website thepodcastisland.com send us as many questions as you have email us as often as you like because your questions and comments if they're nice will be the content of our periodic review episodes which will come approximately every four or five episodes because as we've said this story is complicated but that's okay because the doctor is in and you will be kept up to date so climb aboard History is cool.